We are so excited to announce that the Remedial Herstory Project will be having our first annual summer retreat coming to you in August of 2021. Join us here in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Kick back, relax, enjoy the spa and a little bit of women's history. We are so excited to be bringing some of the best women's historians in the world to you. They are here to teach you the bits of women's history that you may have missed in history class, and we are here to guide you on the tools that you will need to get them into the classroom. The retreat is 50% pedagogy and 50% women's history. You will leave with dozens of printed lesson plans, learning materials, and tools that you can use. You can see the entire schedule of events on our website, as well as the names of some of the historians who will be presenting www.remedialherstory.com. Look for the page about the summer retreat. Come relax and enjoy the White Mountains of New Hampshire with us. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about sexual assault. Mm. And we are going to be connecting that to why a lot of people don't know the full founding story of Rome. Rome. Interesting. All right. Let's get into this. Okay. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Sexual assault and the founding of Rome. Interesting topic. It is an interesting topic. So, Brooke, actually, I want to start by asking you, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) what do you know about the founding of Rome? (laughs) Not a ton, but I was an English major, so, you know, we talk about Rome and Greek mythology and get into all that. But the only thing I really remember is about the two brothers that were nursed by a she-wolf. And I think one of them's name was Rome. Yeah. Romulus. Yeah, and he like killed his brother, and that's... Remus. There you go. And that's how it was named Rome, but that's all I really remember. And I think that's probably all most people remember. So you're you're among the majority. Okay. Or the the elite nice. majority. What's up, people? <laughs> I'll start a club. <laughs> um, okay, but what should we know? Well, I want to get into what we should know in the second half here. Okay. Um, but what I what I guess the essence of what you should know is that Within that story and within the founding of Rome, there are all these differing myths, and that's just one of the mythical origin stories of Rome. It's a myth? It's a myth, yes. Two brothers were not nursed by a she-wolf? I know, that's really so shocking disappointed. <laughs> I feel like that would have been a definite Netflix series I would have watched. Um. But what's interesting about this, and obviously this is a triggering episode for for people, is that integrated in all of these stories are these stories of women, right? Like human women, not just she-wolves. And um, they're set up in these stories as victims of sexual assault and rape. And so I got myself thinking when I first came across these stories more recently, I was asking myself, well, why would I not, like, Mm. why would my teachers not have told me this? Why would they stick to the the she-wolf version of of this? And and kind of, you know, the Cain and Abel version. There's a biblical component there, too, which is interesting. Um, Why would they stick to that? And I think on its surface, it's just talking about, rape and sexual assault was really hard in classes and yeah you don't get that you know you you history is hard and it's I think it's interesting because we have we talk about wars in which like you know hundreds of thousands of soldiers are killed and brutalized and yet sometimes when the violence is against women it becomes like difficult for people to talk about like it's Mm -hmm. there's I don't know what that cultural barrier is but it becomes really difficult. Um, 
you know, I asked my husband, like, who was a history minor, why, why do you think you didn't know this? And he was like, because no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I get that. So I think, I think that's a big, I think that's a big factor. Um, I also think that people just aren't really, in the U.S., I think we're really bad at world history and classical history and, um, I don't know if we're necessarily bad, but I just, I don't think we dive deep enough to make it impact the way that I think a lot of what we learn growing up is mostly U.S. based or very U.S. centric because obviously that's where we are, but the same time i think a lot of it is based off old methodologies that we're really trying to foster you know what's it called citizenship mm. and patriot you know patriotic humans and yeah get people behind it and i think you miss out on a lot of world history because of that absolutely absolutely okay so so i think there's there's a lot of reasons why it's not in there um, but one thing that really hits me is there's this data that's out there that says that one in five women in the United States will be raped in her lifetime. One in three will be sexually assaulted. And people dispute that data and fine, get all the statisticians you want to dig into it. Even if it's one in a hundred, I'm alarmed. <laughs> And I mean, it should alarm everyone. One in five is severe. Yeah. That means, like, most women that you know and have I think there's stats something. out there, too, about even men being raped by other men. Yeah. So, they're, well, by other people. And there's, I think for men, it's something like one in 38 um, yeah. have been raped. And But actually, the sexual assault numbers for men are one in four, which isn't far off one in three, which is what women yeah. are experiencing. So it is an issue um, for, for men as well. But obviously, when it comes to the rape thing, and that is attempted or completed rape, okay. um, that, that that's the caveat on the CDC's website. And so, again, even if it's, even if it's greater than one in five, I, I still think it's very problematic. And so what I've been thinking about and, and pondering here is when people see that statistic, it alarms them. And a lot of people think, well, that can't be true. And then I'm sitting with that information of like, that can't be true. That's a lot of rape, you know, like what's going on. And then at the same time, I think about how stories of rape are erased from the stories that we tell in our history class. Yeah. To make it unbelievable. Like when so you hear that number, you're, you're like, like, wait a minute. Wait, where did that come from? You know how that's shocking information. Right. Um, and I, I think that there's there's something really important there, and it's almost the case to like teach the hard. And you know, I'm a huge proponent of teaching hard history because yes. I think that kids need and and obviously I'm talking about high school kids here. Mm -hmm. You know, younger kids choose your words appropriately for the age, but I think kids need to be taught hard history. Um, so. And and the and especially when it comes to rape and sexual assault, for the purpose of helping kids understand the cultural components mm -hmm. that contribute to rape, like end goal, less rape, right? Yeah. So if you can see in history how you know the things that cause rape, if you can see in history the way that rape victims are treated, the and to humanize those rape victims, it yeah. might help you see the patterns which happen over and over and over again in world, U.S. and current events. Right, that you might be, we might at least have a deeper understanding of what's going on in our in our culture. Which we should. Which we should. That's an alarming statistic. Yeah. The CDC talks about um, the importance of in, in their guidelines for you know how to how to deal with rape, like creating nurturing, supportive environments for people um, in schools. This is something that I've been thinking about. Just the importance of writing and orgu oral argumentation, but like 
being able to express your feelings, to communicate effectively for both men and women, um, that being really important, um, validating people so that they understand that they can speak up and that their emotions are valid. Right. Mm -hmm. And that like, just cause someone, you know, wants to touch you there or wherever, like you can say no. And I think all of us, have a role to play in, in teaching everybody about consent. Um, yeah, there's um, a really interesting video that came out in the last couple of years that they've played uh, on a lot of college campuses and now more spreading out through high schools, but it's about consent and they relate it to offering someone tea. Have mm. you seen this video? Um, it's so it's like Bonnie and Chris sit and Chris offers Bonnie tea. She says no. Then don't give her tea, Chris. She said no. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, but Chris comes back with more tea and offers it again. And Bonnie still says, so it's like this whole video, and I think I'm getting the characters' names wrong, but just about relating it to that really relatable topic, like offering someone food. Right. There's consent in accepting something. And like, it's that simple. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be overstated or understated. It is that simple of like, if someone doesn't want you to touch them and they don't say yes, then do not touch them. Right, right. <laughs> and I, but there's also, there's so many th stories out there, and you know, and there's probably women listening that this has been their story. So you know, it's hard. But there's also a really big problem around paralyzation when you know you're being attacked and you can't yeah. say those things. And so it's not as simple. Well, it's a, it's of, a very of having a strong verbal, you know, presence or feeling it's like one you can say you know, fight flight right or freeze yep. yeah and exactly it totally makes sense um and i think but that perpetuates sort of like the guilt that a lot of victims Absolutely. feel which makes zero i mean it makes it makes in complete sense but then it makes zero like they should absolutely not be feeling guilt i guess is what i'm trying yeah, to and that, yeah there's so many there's so many stories out there that of women that come forward years later because they finally feel strong enough to say their point and yeah i think our justice system does everyone a disservice by statute of limitations so there's a lot around this topic but yeah i want to hear more about why you feel like it's important to bring it up well, I think girls and boys need to know the elements of our culture that perpetuate rape. Mm -hmm. And in history, there are so many like times where we can see rape and sexual assault occurring, and there are patterns. And so, you know, one of them in war, we see it over and over again. It is part of the victory of war in right. a lot of, in, especially in world history. And so if, um, and it, it's part of like male, it's part of domination, right? And so you take a militarized, militaristic culture. And, you know, I would even argue that militarism venerates masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. And so you take that culture, this like, hyper masculine culture within an army or whatever. And now they've been victorious over these, you know, emasculated men. And so part two is, you know, in, in older war, it was, you know, rape or, or sorry, kill or enslave the men and then rape and enslave the, the children. Right. Um, and war gets, you know, more sophisticated and humane as time goes on, but there's still like cases like that. And we talked about this with the Mexican American right, war, yeah. um, and, and more recent wars. So, um, so I think, I think that's a piece that we can see over and over again. Um, and, and that also just speaks to power dynamics, right? In, in military situations, we're seeing a power dynamic, like literally playing out on a battlefield. Um, but we can talk about power dynamics within groups of people or um, in relationships. And sure. that gets makes things, you know, we can see power dynamics play out in history. That's mostly what history is, is power dynamics. Right. Um, and then I, I think what's really tricky about what, consent, right, which is really the, the essence here, is, is really understanding consent, understanding when people can consent, understanding when people cannot consent, um, and, and, the differences and, you know, and 
in marriages can people consent and not or have you just consented because you're married right like there there have you know only recently have those types of laws been stripped from the books yeah i think anytime you have two people there's a dynamic between them male or female you know and you have to be understanding of each other's boundaries what those boundaries are and constantly discussing them if you're unsure mm-hmm. like that it should be a dialogue a conversation about taking things to the next step in any relationship should be a conversation. Right, but what you're describing, and even actually the hand gesture that you're doing as you're Yeah, I'm like, it's back and forth. It's back and forth, right? Which to me symbolizes an equitable power dynamic. And so that gets really hard because if you come from a culture where masculinity is equivalent to domination, it makes it really tricky because essentially to make things equitable, you're emasculating men. Well, that's a big assumption, but I get, (laughs) I'll follow you. Okay. So we've talked about militarism. We've talked about essentially toxic masculinity to use use the term. Um, there's a great book by... I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Anytime he has a book, I read it. Um, <laughs> You've came, actually asked me to read several of them, so I feel this turn <laughs> um, But he came out with a book recently called Talking to Strangers. And I think for history teachers listening, you should definitely read this book because there are so many really cool historic anecdotes in there. But also it's like very well-researched, really interesting um, scientific topics about... Human relationships and power dynamics. Yeah. And essentially the thesis of this book is that we're really bad at understanding strangers. And we can't read strangers, even in the best of circumstances. It was really mind-blowing for me as my job is to read strangers. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh no. This is like really blowing up my entire industry. But he made so many valid points. And there was that really interesting story about... Um, the girl and boy in college. Yeah. So there is a rape case that he investigates with depth and sort of uses it as this anecdote to, to make, to prove his thesis. Right. But at, by the time he gets into this rape case, which is a true story from California, um, he has pretty much already made everybody feel like, yeah, there's no way any of us could ever read strangers. And... So then he talks about on college campuses adding in things like alcohol. And in this particular case, um, both the guy and the girl had been drinking. You know, typical college campus Saturday, Friday night or whatever. And, um, And so if you're bad at picking up on social cues, if you're bad at reading little, you know, those those. You know, and at this point in your life, you're not aware you're bad at these things. Oh, you're yeah. young. You're a young adult. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know that you're bad at it. You you assume that you're being pretty pretty clear, and other people, you know, if you're the girl saying no, you assume you're being clear when you're saying no. And if you're the guy, you assume that you're understand. You know, I'm using guy and girl because that is the the case that we're looking at, but. You know, you're assuming that you're understanding and appropriately picking up on these cues. And um, he, I think, essentially makes the claim that while this guy did have sex with this girl and she was not, like, conscious enough to consent, um, he, he doesn't claim that he was an innocent young man or anything like that, but but he does sort of, you you feel bad for him by the end of it because of how clear he's made it that people can't really read strangers right and um he, I don't was, know. I, yeah that part in the book was tough because no I'm gonna let you keep going <laughs> <laughs> why what was hard about it well here's my thing with this scenario I have my you know my own lens on it of like I don't know do not stick a penis in a vagina that doesn't say cool with it yeah I just well, she didn't and she didn't yeah, she didn't say... And the education for that young man prior to this moment could have been better. Right, but you also throw out throw in alcohol, and it's like, even if he was the most educated person. And so I personally, what I think is, I think young people in general, I think all people, because 
adult human, even though most rape occurs when people are in, in these younger years, um, adult people as well experience rape. And I think that all people need to understand the circumstances that perpetuate rape. And if you can understand that and avoid those situations, everybody's better off. And I, I almost wish, and I need to really be careful about my wording here because we're both mothers of sons, but I almost yeah, wish like, that young boys were raised to believe that, because if you look at that data, one in five, that means there are a lot of rapists. And I don't know many men that I'm like, wow, you're the scum of the earth, right? So most of the men that I know are wonderful human beings. And yet one in five women are raped. So to me, that says normal people rape yeah. people. And what is causing that? And to me, that's culture. To me, that's circumstances. To me, that's the the careless culture on college campuses. Um, it's, you know, militarism perpetuating the rape that we're seeing on military bases presently. Um, and I think that there's, that if more people acted like, you know what, given the right circumstances, I too could be a rapist. Wow. That's bold. I know that's bold. But I mean, I, I'm following you here. I do. I have a hard time because I am a mother of sons. And we will be talking about consent in our household. We already do with them as, you know, my son's going to be four. His body is his body. He gets yep. to decide who touches it and when. We tell him there's adults you can trust, but he has to also trust his body and how he feels. Mm-hmm. Just as, you know, and, and I want him to grow into his intuition of knowing what's right and wrong yep. and feel that intimately, not because mommy and daddy say it, but because you know it. And so we talk about it already, mm-hmm. consent and what that is, because young men are sexually assaulted at a much higher rate than young women, which is an interesting fact about yeah. sexual assault. So, you know, don't just, it just because that person says they're a doctor. Yeah. You get to decide if they are allowed to touch your body. Yeah. Just because that person is your your daycare provider, your teacher. And you get to decide if it's okay for them to touch your body. These are conversations we have. And as they continue to get older, that conversation will shift to other people get to decide who touches their body. Mm-hmm. And you have to respect that boundary as well. And we even practice it with them. It's like yeah. we make our older son ask our younger son, can I hug you? Yeah. Can I give you a kiss? Yeah. Can I say goodnight? And my younger son uses his boundaries, and he says no. Yep. And we applaud him for that. So there's opportunities, I think, as you're raising children to put these things in place. But we're doing counterbalance work. Right. You know, we're trying to help our own children in this moment, but the rest of the world and the society we live in is hyper-masculine. Yeah. And it's very dangerous, and I think that's what you're getting at, is that if the circumstances are what they could be because of how our society is. Yeah. Rape is more likely to happen even if I raise my children this way. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think, I think there's so, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't know, uh, but I don't think most rapists go, you know, it'll be a fun thing to do. I think the serial like really messed up sociopaths. Yeah. But I think the data shows that too many normal people are doing that. And I don't think they think, to them, and I don't think that gentleman in in the case in Malcolm Gladwell's book woke up that day and said, "Today's the day I'm going to rape somebody." Right. You know. But he was an opportunist in the moment that happened. Yeah. And that says something about his internal guiding principles. Totally. And that so whether he woke up that day thinking that the opportunity presented himself, and over his lifetime he could have thought in other moments that this might be the opportunity and didn't take it. Yeah. That's a predator. Right. Yeah. So um, if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. There's so many other really neat historical anecdotes for, for people to, to be aware of and, and know. And that's just one of, one of the cases talked about in that book. So we're going to shift to, obviously, this is something that is problematic in our culture today. Mm-hmm. When there are accusations of rape, we have automatic defenses and 
things that are, you know, block, like walls that people put up to, to those situations. We still have issues with, with victim blaming and evidence and really digging into consent in specific cases. And uh-huh. that gets really, really tricky. And unfortunately, it is so ding dang hard to prove rape in our culture because of, um, you know, guilty until proven innocent and, um, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And that gets really hard when you're talking about typically an event that literally no one witnessed other than the two people involved. And so it becomes he said, she said, and and all of those things. I do think in our culture it's getting better when, uh, when people come forward and say they've been raped because of the medical teams that are in place to assess that. Well, and also the fact that people are pushing victims to not feel shame, right? To go to the doctor right now, right? Go do that. Well, that, but it's a pretty violating experience to go through a rape kit assessment. And I don't, that's something I would encourage all young women to watch a video. There's a couple, actually Grey's Anatomy just did an entire episode on a woman that was raped. Mm -hmm. Um, And the process of going through the kit of how they have to collect all of the samples. There's a lot, and I think it's bringing awareness to things that are really difficult, but it's breaking down barriers mm-hmm. where I think more women and men understand what to expect from their healthcare teams. Mm-hmm. And I think healthcare teams are getting better at understanding how to co- have conversations with victims. So there's a lot perpetuating, you know, moving this, this needle forward and helping victims. And you can go forward and get assessed and get all the details. You don't have to do anything with it. Yeah. You do not have to press charges. That's actually not part of it. So there's all these steps in place where you get to say yes to the next things that are happening You get to to consent. Exactly. From that moment forward, you get to start to take some of your power back. Yeah. That's awesome. So I think one thing that people will find interesting is just how many parallels there are in the conversations that we have in our contemporary world about rape and sexual assault with conversations that ancient Romans had about Mm -hmm. rape and sexual assault. Um, Tonight, we're going to be relying primarily on the, like, number one classicist historian, Mary Beard. And if you don't, there are some historians that you should just know their names, and she is one of them. I feel like I know her name now because we talk about her so much. (laughs) But she is a badass, and I'm going to be working out of a couple books here. Um, If you're, like, listening and you're like, yeah, I like listening to this podcast, but I'm not, like, into reading a ton of books on history, (laughs) the book for you is called Women in Power, a Manifesto by Mary Beard. And this book is, Brooke, how thick is that bad boy? She's barely moved her fingers apart. It is relatively thin. I would say less than 100 pages. Yeah. Easily. You could read like, it in a day. You'd get this. You'd bang this. Oh, and wide margins. Yeah, I wide mean, margins. And this gem will just talk you through the parallels breezy breezy read breezy read it's the other book however that she's holding up much thicker much thicker and it's a new york times bestseller but definitely more for the historian out there it's called spqr an ancient history uh, sorry a history of ancient rome and this book is about the people of rome and it's more of like a people's history Mm. um which you know, most Roman histories focus on the leaders, and this gives you the story of, of the other half, um, which is usually more than half the other 90%. Deal. <laughs> so this is a gem, and we're going to be relying on those a bit after the break. So, Brooke, let's take a short break. Deal. See you back. We'll be right back. The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. Our goal is to create free learning materials for educators to use tomorrow. Head over to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. Download everything and give it to a friend. We need women's history in the classroom like yesterday. If you're not a history teacher and you want to do something to help us out, head over to our store. We've got all sorts of fun things for you to peruse, and all of that goes to supporting our mission. If you think what we're doing is needed, you can support the Remedial History Project by becoming a sponsor through Anchor or becoming a patron. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes materials, gear, 
bonus episodes, and more. Most importantly, they're putting their money where their mouth is and helping us get women's history into the classroom. Our history maker, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Christian, Brooke, and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie, Kent, Jenna, and Nancy. And our history allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Anne, and Alicia. Thank you so much. You all make this show possible. Brooke, welcome back. Yes, when in Rome. When in Rome. <laughs> let's talk about Rome. Okay, so we are going to be talking about the origin of Rome. And so let me read from a very typical traditional textbook for a moment. Oh, gross. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> for those of you looking to skip ahead, how large is the section? <laughs> We are not going to read a lot, um, but I love, okay, for history teachers out there, I love doing this exercise. Read what the textbook has to say about something and then give the kids a much juicier document to get mm. into so okay. that they can understand how limit, like textbooks might give you an overview, but it's like, it, a textbook is the equivalent of your monotone history professor, right? Should I read this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it says from kingdom to Republic founded in the eighth century BCE, the city of Rome was originally a small city state ruled by a single King late in the sixth century BCE, the city's aristocrats deposed the King ended the monarchy and instituted a Republic, a form of government in which delegates represented the interests of various constituencies. The Roman Republic survived for more than 500 years and it was under the Republic constitution that Rome established itself as the dominant power in the Mediterranean basin. Bam. So then we get into Romulus and Remus, and they even get a gold title here, Romulus and oh, Remus. That means they're important. Yes. Please pause. Please pause. For this, a myth in your history book. For a myth in your history book. The city of Rome arose from origins both obscure and humble. According to the ancient legends, the city owned its existence to the flight of an Aeneas, a refugee from Troy who migrated to Italy when Greek invaders destroyed his native land. Two of his descendants, the twins Romulus and Remus, almost did not survive infancy because an evil uncle abandoned them by the flooded Tiber River fully expecting them to drown or die of exposure. But a kindly she-wolf found them and nursed them to health. The boys grew strong and courageous, and in 753 BCE, Romulus founded the city of Rome and established himself as the first king. Modern scholars do not tell so colorful a tale, but they agree that Rome grew from humble beginnings. Beginning about 2000 BCE, bands of Indo-European migrants crossed the Alps and settled throughout the Italian peninsula, like their distant cousins in India, Greece, and Northern Europe. These migrants blended with the Neolithic inhabitants of the region, adopted agriculture, and established tribal federations. Sheep herders and small farmers occupied much of the Italian peninsula, including the future site of Rome itself. Blah, 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 I mean, blah. I love you, but I already stopped listening. <laughs> So it goes on. So what's interesting here is that the Romulus and Remus story, first of all, they talk about how it's a legend, and they talk about how this guy, Aeneas, is a refugee from Troy, and he, these guys are descendants from him, but it's like in such a way that you are bored to tears. And then importantly, for the sake of our podcast, which is dedicated to women's history, not a woman is mentioned. I mean, well, men... We're just miraculously <laughs> born without a mother. And according to legend, didn't even have one. <laughs> to nurse them. Yeah. Okay, so that is my more traditional textbook. And I also have a more progressive textbook. And this okay. is the one that I use in my AP World History class. It's called Ways of the World, a Global History with Sources. Okay. Mm, nerdy. So it says <laughs> the rise of empires is among the perennial questions that historians tackle. Like the Persian Empire, that of the Romans took shape initially on the margins of the civilized world and was an unlikely rags to riches story. Rome began as a small and impoverished city-state on the western side of central Italy in the late 18th century. 
sorry, 8th century. According to legend, the city was so weak that Romans were reduced to kidnapping neighboring women to maintain its population. So, so what's important here is that they mention women. Yes. But in this particular story, they say that they kidnap women. And that's a really convenient way of saying rape. So. I know, they like breezed by it. It was like, um, yeah, they were just kidnapped. They were just, For what purpose? Yeah, why are they kidnapping women to, like, to populate? So, to, so that means they're having sex with them in order to create... But do they wait to take them on dates after they've kidnapped them to get them to feel obligated? <laughs> like, what is the romance period that you're skipping over? Oh, wait, there was none because yeah. it's rape. Oh, my gosh. So this is part of, I think, the problematic piece of using textbooks. And I think as history teachers, we need to have a few more tricks up our sleeve, right, to help kids expand on what the textbooks <laughs> I mean. just have to pause you. Kelsey actually did the tricks up your sleeve action I know a gesture like she was going to pull scarves out of her what if I did (laughs) like what if you did that as a teacher they were just like scarves of women's facts 95 percent of women are raped in Rome now you know oh my gosh oh my gosh this is when we should record live (laughs) okay go so Mary Beard really aptly points out that to bookend this period of kings, this regal period of Roman history, before there was a republic, before there was democracy, right? Right. It begins and it ends with rape, which is really interesting. Mm. And for the Romans, this was symbolic, right? So these are mythical stories. It's literature. And so there's some symbolism here about how tyrants will always have sort of like like these sort of awful things that happen in society surround tyranny. And it's not until the Republic that these sort of things go away, which we know doesn't actually happen. But, <laughs> um, but that's what the Romans loved to tell themselves yep. about this period. So um, there are, so this story of Romulus and Remus is, uh, is interesting, and it's a story told by the first Roman historian, Livy. Um, archaeologists have never managed to identify any, like, provable things related to, to any of to these stories. stories. Okay. <laughs> so it certainly is, even though Romans assumed that it was, in broad terms, history. The wolf's nurturing of the twins is such a strange episode in a very peculiar tale that even ancient writers sometimes showed a healthy skepticism about the appearance of a conveniently lactating animal to suckle the pair of abandoned babies right on cue. The rest of the narrative is an extraordinary mixture of puzzling details, not only the unusual idea of having two founders, Romulus and Remus, but also a series of decidedly unheroic elements from murder through rape and abduction to the bulk of Rome's first citizens being criminals and runaways. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing it's that, that she talks about. Like, this is perhaps one of the most well-known stories yeah. of the ancient world. And yet it is just, like, so foundationally bizarre. And flawed. And flawed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she talks about how the writers, you know, Roman writers tell the story over and over and over right. again. And, um, and I, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing. And it tells you how much this story perpetuates you know, the, mm-hmm. the culture and ideas and thinking in, in that time. Um, so she says there's no single story of, of Romulus who eventually does found Rome. And um, some of the stories that we hear are sometimes incompatible with one another. And so she has sort of whittled through the BS to get us to... The give act, us the meat, Mary. Give us the, the, the meat <laughs> of it, Okay. So these guys are born to a virgin priestess who is um, left out, I think, of both of the textbooks, but also of our sort of understanding of this Mm -hmm. story. And we've talked on previous episodes about how these virgin births are... Like, happen all the time. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It's always a virgin. Always a virgin in order to make her this, like, pure being. Um, 
So she had not, she says she had not yet taken the um, virginal office of her own free will, but had been forced to it after uh, a struggle for power that saw her uncle take over as king after ousting her brother. So um, in order to prevent the awkward appearance of any heirs and rivals from his brother's line, she had to then become this sort of like devout virgin. Um, according to Livy, she claimed that she had been raped by the god Mars. Livy appears to be as doubtful about this as Cicero. Mars, he suggests, might have been a convenient pretense to cover an entirely human affair. But others wrote confidently about the disembodied phallus coming out of the flames of the sacred fire that she was supposed to be tending. What? (laughs) I'm sorry. What? Yes. Go over to that fire and touch the phallus. <laughs> it's coming out of it. Tend to that, would you? <laughs> if you're not too busy, could you just keep it aflame? Thank you. But I think it's really fascinating that both the books wrote out their mother, right? Oh, Who yeah. is apparently a virgin priestess, right? Like, that's fascinating. Um, so she gives birth to these twins And her uncle orders the servant to throw the babies into the river, and that part of the story we know. And we know that this nurturing wolf comes along to to save her and and to save the babies and all that thing. Um, So it's possible that a... And so, you know, Mary Beard speculates here. Could it be that a local whore, rather than a local wild beast, had found and tended the twins? Whatever the identity of the woman who cared for them, um, herdsmen or shepherds soon found the boys and took them in. Um, Livy wondered, maybe the the shepherds, maybe it was one of their wives who was actually a whore. And so she gave birth to these babies and they made up this whole story, right? So the Romans are trying to like make real this this myth that is is being broken down. so they they become part of this like country family, you know, shepherds and herdsmen. So the boys grow up and we know that at some point there are various versions of what happens. Romulus ends up killing his brother. And so he becomes the sole sort of leader in yep. this emerging So then she gets into the rape part of this story. Remus is dead, she starts. Romulus declares this city a place that runaways could come and enter, you know, peacefully. It's an asylum city. Sure. And so this, of course, produced a lot of men coming to this city to be a part of it. But they were short on women, which the second textbook referred to, this sort of problem of not not having enough women. So he invited the neighboring peoples, uh, the Sabines and the Latins, uh, from the area around Rome to come and enjoy a religious festival plus entertainments families everybody just come enjoy the enjoy this and in the middle of the proceedings she says he gave a signal for his men to abduct the young women among the visitors and carry them off as their wives can you imagine no she asks a really interesting question here she says was the inevitable implication that their institution of marriage originated in rape in dominance right is that how marriage works, right? Where did the dividing line befall between abduction and rape? What did the occasion say more generally about the belligerence of Rome? Um, Livy tries to defend the early Romans, she says. He insists that they seized only unmarried women. This was the origin of marriage, not of adultery. And by stressing the idea that the Romans did not choose the women but took them at random, he argues that they were resorting to a necessary expedient for the future of their community, which was followed by loving talk and promises of affection from the men to their new brides. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) believe that other people presented it differently some detected right at the origin the city all the telltale signs of later Roman belligerence the conflict they argued was unprovoked and the fact that the Romans took only 30 women if 30 it was demonstrates that war not marriage was uppermost in their minds Okay, so so I think that's just kind of interesting that this had very little to do with marriage or the women 
Um, and they talk here about the predatory behavior of the Romans throughout their history. And so this just being the origin story. Makes which, sense. Okay. Which is pretty fascinating. Um, so there's these wars that go on between the neighboring city-states. And she says at the bottom of page 63 in SPQR, the hostilities were only halted in the end thanks to the women themselves, who were now content with their lot as Roman wives and mothers. They bravely entered the field of battle and begged their husbands on one side and fathers on the other to stop the fighting. Uh, There's a quote here. uh, We'll better die ourselves, they explained, than live without either of you as widows or as orphans. Wow. So I think that's kind of an interesting story of their own sort of agency in the situation, right? Stuck yeah. between potentially the fathers of their children, right? Like whether consent or whatever was there and, um, and then their own fathers, right? And brothers right. on the other side. So, um, so that's an interesting sort of origin and the, the rape part completely lost in, in, uh, you know, questioning rape part completely lost in the other textbooks. Yeah. Um, so the problem here though, is that this is not the only foundation story. It's just perhaps the most well-known one. Um, there were include, there are other ones, um, that get at, uh, so one, one of the Greek ideas, for example, she says, brought the renowned Odysseus and echoes of Homer's Odyssey into the story by suggesting that Rome's real founding father was a man called Ramus, the result of Odysseus's affair with a witch, Circe, whose magical island was sometimes imagined to lie just off the coast of Italy. This was a neat, although implausible, bit of cultural imperialism that gave Rome a Greek parentage. So it's sort of like, oh, that was a powerful thing over there. Let's try to figure out how to get that into our story, even if it doesn't really belong there at all. Um, But then, of course, there's the story that was referenced in the textbooks, that of Aeneas, who washes ashore on his long journey from Troy. And um, he ends up actually, uh, before he gets to Italy, before he gets to Rome, um, he actually lands in Carthage. And there he falls in love with, and it's one of those tragic love stories that Shakespeare and others loved to like steal ideas from right. later on. He falls in love with Dido, the queen of Carthage. And um, this is, you know, a, a love that is not likely to last because uh, she is, you know, bound to Carthage as queen. And he is obviously on this journey to found Rome. <laughs> and so... Um, He tells her that he has to leave her, and she's so distraught that she throws herself into flames and and kills herself, as women do. Um, Hysterical. When when they, yes, when they are, you know. Forced to be single. (laughs) Exactly. So... Uh, Mary Beard says, It goes without saying that the story of Aeneas is is as much a myth as the story of Romulus, but Roman scholars puzzled over the relationship of these two foundational legends and expended enormous amounts of energy trying to bring them into historic alignment. It was Romulus's son, or maybe the grandson of Aeneas, and Romulus had founded Rome. How could Aeneas have also done so? The big 8th century BCE date that the Romans assigned to the origins of their city and the 12th century BCE date that they commonly have given given to the fall of Troy is also kind of problematic because mm. there's like th- you know four centuries between these things. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a hundred years. It's yeah. like no no. <laughs> yeah four centuries are between between these events that they're trying to somehow puzzle together and I think what the, one thing that I love about her analysis here is her sort of joking about the Romans trying to piece these origin right. stories together. Um, and what's hilarious about that is the textbook that I read previously just says that they go together. It just like makes that claim. <laughs> Breeze, and I, breezes by. And I, I always want my students to get into the historiography to like right. understand why these are clearly legends and not real. Right. And just saying that I think doesn't give, 
you know, the full scope of the story. They, they just can't possibly line up. Um, but I also think it's interesting that Roman writers are trying to make them line up uh, desperately because they want these Right, stories. they want it to make it happen. Yeah, they want these myths to, to be true, which is also just, just really fascinating. So there are multiple origin stories for Rome. Either there's a... Uh, priestess who is raped and her sons go on to fight each other to the death and then lead the city-state into raping all the villaging women, the the neighboring village women. Or um, there's this tragic love story of Aeneas who's, you know, falls in love with this woman who has no, like, self-control, apparently, and sees him as her only option despite the fact that she's a queen and um and kills herself when he leaves so those are the competing legends at the founding of rome a lot of which is lost at the close of this period of kings which to you know people that are pro-democracy and pro-republicanism the period of kings is sort of this this stain on mm-hmm. Roman history. And so they begin it with rape and they end it with such. And so this gets us to the rape of Lucretia. And this her rape is the end of the regal period. And we have her name. Um, this theme of her rape has been replayed and reimagined in Western culture almost ever since it was originally written. And it is perhaps one of the better known stories in, in Roman literature. So Livy tells a highly colored tale of these last moments of the monarchy. It starts with a group of young Romans who were trying to find ways of passing the time while besieging a nearby town um, in, you know, so they're out, they're drunken, and they're just sort of yep. like getting, getting wild. Um, they have this debate about whose wife was best. And uh, Lucius suggests that they should just ride back home and see what their wives are doing. And that will be sort of how they gauge who has the better wife. Okay? Interesting. So, um, and he, he insists that his wife, Lucretia, is by far the best wife. So they do, and um, all of the other wives of the men at this party are um, discovered partying in the absence of their menfolk. They're getting <laughs> rowdy, right? And when they came to Lucius's house, his wife Lucretia is home, and she is doing exactly what was expected of a virtuous Roman woman. Reading? <laughs> she was working at her loom among her maids, And then when unexpected guests arrived, she offered them food and and drink and all of those things, as a good wife should, okay? So I think that's interesting here uh, to help lay the groundwork, first of all, in this tale of what they think good wives are, right? Yeah. Good wives are servants, essentially. Yep. And the other wives who are off partying, they're, they're the bad wives, right? And so he wins this sort of gamble because his wife is demonstrating her subservience. Um, so there's a terrible sequel to this story, obviously, because she ends up being raped. So Sextus uh, conceived a fatal passion for her during this encounter, and he becomes obsessed with her. And so another night later on, he comes riding back to her house. And he, she politely entertains him, as she had done the first time, because that's what she's supposed to do as a good sure. wife. And this is her husband's friend, and so she did that. And he comes to her room, and he demands sex with her at knife point. Mary Beard says, when the simple threat of death did not move her, he exploited instead her fear of dishonor. He threatened to kill both her and a slave so that it would look as if she had been caught in the most disgraceful form of adultery. Faced with this, she ascended. But when uh, her husband had returned, uh, she sent for him and her father and told them what happened. And then she killed herself. Whoa. So this is a, just a mind-blowing story because it's a very powerful, I mean, all the different things that are going on there. She is threatened with rape. 
So she consents in order to right save, yeah, save face, save save whatever, and then she's overwhelmed with the guilt of that. So she tells her husband and father, and then she feels so guilty with her dishonor that she kills herself. And I think what's really hard about her story is the the story itself is difficult to process, but the way that her story is treated by other historians of the and other writers of the period mm-hmm. is so similar to the way that modern women who are rape victims are treated. Um, one Roman writer wrote, quote, a whole series of clever, sparky, and rude verses at the end of the first century. Jokes that his wife could be a Lucretia by day if she wants, so long as she's a whore by night. In another quip, he wonders whether Lucretias were ever quite what they seem. Even the most famous Lucretia, he fantasizes, enjoyed risque poems when her husband wasn't looking. More serious was the issue of Lucretia's culpability and the reasons for her suicide. To some Romans, it looked as if she was more concerned with her reputation than with real chastity, which surely resided in the guilt or innocence of her mind, not her body, and would have been remotely affected by false allegations of sex with a slave. Um, St. Augustine, who was well-versed in the pagan classics, wondered if Lucretia had been raped at all, for had she not, in the end, consented? And it just, like, makes my blood boil to hear these ancient writers saying that, but then also to know that that's the type of stuff that people say now about these types of victims. And Mary Beard points that out pretty poignantly. She says, is... It is not hard to detect here versions of some of our own arguments about rape, the issues of responsibility it raises. Um, So this is a political moment, though, in Roman history. Uh, This story leads directly to the expulsion of kings and the beginning of the Republic. So she says, as soon as Lucretia stabbed herself, Lucius Brutus, who had been who had accompanied her husband to the scene, took the dagger from her body, and while her family was too distressed to speak, vowed to rid Rome of kings forever. This was, of course, partly a retrospective prophecy for the Brutus, who in 44 BCE led the coup against Julius Caesar for his kingly ambitions, um, claimed his descent from this right. other Brutus, you know, earlier. After assuring the support of the army and the people who were appalled by the rape and fed up with laboring on this drain that they'd been working on for a long time, um, they f- they are able to force the king and his sons into exile. And so ends the, the regal period of Roman history. Great. So this, I think what's just really hard about this story is just seeing how many times it permeates into other stories, how it lays the foundations for this sense of what women should be, um, what makes them right or wrong, or, you know, almost like the masculinity that these men have by, you know, how, how controlled is your wife back home? Um, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew comes to mind. There's a lot of parallels, I think, there. Um, and the fact that this woman who is raped in this time feels like, you know, we were talking about rape kits before, like there are few options for her after that because her chastity is gone, her honor is gone, and, and what should she do? And of course, the modern audience listening to that story is like, she didn't do anything. Right. Wrong. Like she, she was the good wife. And so in this story, what's also really hard is the wives who were the rowdy partying wives, like are condemned as like bad wives because they are like enjoying themselves. And the wife who's dutiful is still loses. Right. So what, when do women win in this this time period? Um, it's just really tricky. So these of course are myths. Right. And, we shouldn't be taking them at face value, no. right? Like that isn't that this isn't an accurate history of the, of the founding. We know that it emerged from a city state and that it was but humble if, origins. Yeah, but if these are the stories that are supposedly to pilot a a nation, right? It's a little alarming that we're not talking about the actual events of rape, right? 
and we're glossing over those scenarios. Right. Well, and the fact that all of that was conveniently left out of the Both texts. the texts. Yeah. Did not speak about them. Yeah. But women were at the forefront of both of them. <laughs> right. So what I've done for teachers is this is a, you know, a very simple lesson plan where you take mm-hmm. the little like paragraph that the textbook has and you take the, you know, a couple paragraphs here from Mary Beard's book and you're, you ask like, what's different about these stories? <laughs> Why do you think the textbook wouldn't include those things? What do you think that means? Um, and obviously this would be targeted for older, older students, but. Well, and you can even preface that entire lesson plan with, we're going to talk about difficult topics today. Yeah. One of those is rape. Yeah. And, you know, you can step away and not talk about it if you need to, or, yeah. you know, you can set up a safe space for all of your students so you can dialogue. Absolutely. Sounds really interesting. Cool. Yeah. And I, I think whatever conclusions you draw at the end of that lesson, the takeaway should be something to the effect of, and the question should be asked, what options did Lucretia actually have right Right. because the last thing you want is people walking away thinking that that is an appropriate path for women right and what we want women to know is that there is a path forward after that trauma exactly yeah absolutely and uh yeah to anyone in the room listening don't rape oh yeah that'd be great yeah i heard actually um if you know you want to prevent rape what you should do is carry a whistle right Oh, yes, and then, like, blow it to alert people that you might be raping someone. at any point, just start (laughs) blowing that when you think you might rape, so. Thank you, Sarah Silverman. um, (laughs) Yeah, can we not blame the victims any further? And rape doesn't happen to women. It is done by someone. Yes. Yeah, so I almost hate the rape of Lucretia. It should be, like, sexist rape. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Right? That's his thing. It's, It's on him. He's a rapist. Yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. I get it. Kelsey, thank you for this topic. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke. I'm Brooke Sullivan. (laughs) I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.